Welcome to Here at Haas, a podcast to share the wide-ranging stories of our amazing students and faculty from all the Berkeley MBA programs. Today, we have a special roundtable episode with students from BBSA, the Black Business Students Association, to provide perspective on George Floyd, protests, and racism and anti-blackness that unfortunately still exist today in our country. Without further ado, let's meet our guests. Hey, my name is Jared Wright. I am a EWB MBA student, class of 2022, and I'm from, I'm actually from right here from the Bay Area. Hi, everyone. I'm Nuhamin Waldemariam. I am an EWMBA student, OSCE cohort, woot woot, class of 22. I was born in Ethiopia. I grew up in Chicago, and now I am a Bay Area resident, Oakland, to be specific. Hello, everyone. My name is Olasheni Bello. I am uh, originally from Nigeria, moved to the U.S. when I was younger with my mother. I am a full-time MBA. Previously, was served in the Army and also New York licensed attorney and uh, happy to be here. Well, thank you guys so much for taking time out of your morning to come on the podcast. Where I want to start is the George Floyd incident that happened a few weeks ago. Obviously, it's a very tragic event. And so I just wanted to ask you guys to start off where you were when you heard about the incident, you know, and how you felt. And if you can share your viewpoints on the matter that has in the weeks that have gone by with some of the protests and some of the rallies. Why don't we start with Ola Shaney? Well, I was home, as probably many listeners, you know, being under quarantine for the last couple months and stay home orders and pretty much home has been where I've been. And um, I was doing some work on my start and I came down and, to watch the news and, you know, it's nothing new. And my immediate reaction was more of the same because I, I've i seen this so many times, right? And so um, disappointment, there's a sort of numbness because you, as someone of a diverse background, you're aware it's sort of your daily existence, but I was numb and disappointed. But again, it just added to the multiple names that have already experienced similar fate um, Brianna Taylor and, and look, it's it's just a constant heavy feeling. Yeah, I was home as well. I remember just finding out about it on Instagram and um, going over to the news and reading articles about what happened. I would definitely agree. There's this unfortunate feeling that you feel like well this happened again and it's not just George Floyd right it's the countless other names that have always had this sort of treatment and the consistencies of what happens afterward is what's disappointing right justice isn't served what does justice look like because I mean is the life going to come back no Right. And so those are some of the immediate thoughts that always come into my head. But in terms of personally, it impacts the way that I'm now going to have this increased reaction when I get stopped by the cops or the way I think about the justice system and how things are just unfair. It does something to you internally that you pack away and because you have to continue moving on with your day to day. Right. So I agree with this numbness feeling of of feeling helpless and and it's now strengthening my lack of faith that I have in justice at all in this country. Mm-hmm. How about you, Derek? So to be honest, I really can't remember where I was. Um, I hear about these things constantly. And for every George Floyd, there's you know so many others that we know of personally in our own lives that, that have gone through the exact same thing. And like everyone has said so far, you know, there's there's just this some sort of numbness, and I feel like that the rage that that's happening out in the streets, it's it's almost like the country is kind of catching up with us because this is just what's been happening. It's just what's been going on for so long, and it didn't really resonate with me in a new place until. I attended one of the major protests on a Friday, 
And now I, I don't really go to protests. I have a very different way of protesting. But being there on the front lines with, you know, with a sign is not, not typically my mode. But while I was there, one, I was still a minority, which in itself was a little strange, but, you know, okay, it's fine, whatever. But all of the all of the violence, all of the bottle throwing, all of the aggression from the crowd, from what I've seen, all came from white people. And it was especially pernicious because every every glass is being broken. All all of that stuff, that's all going to be blamed on us at the end of the day. And all of that aggression is going to be blamed on us. And so later on, while I was watching social media, looking at the news, talking to friends, and it didn't matter, black, white, Indian, whatever, you know, they're like, well, you know how black people get when they get angry. They tend to break mm-hmm. things. So, you know, just leave them alone and hopefully they'll they'll stop breaking things because, you know, they're angry and we're gonna be safe as soon as they're as soon as they're done. But there's a cyclical a cyclical effect there because that same thought process is the thought process that is why when you pull me over, because black people get angry and they tend to break things, I should probably pull out my gun and get ready. You know, it's that same thought process that happens and seeing that firsthand really affected me. Mm-hmm. And thanks for sharing that. I think your point on you know, no matter what the true story is, people of color uh, and black people are blamed, oftentimes wrongly so, for crimes that, you know, they probably didn't even commit. I think the next question I want to ask you guys is the theme of um, numbness and that this happened again is is pretty uh, prevalent. I think all three of you guys had said something to that effect. And that kind of begs the question of there are some deeper seated issues that underlie these actions, right? These actions of violence, uh, these actions of injustice, these actions that have affected not only George Floyd, but also Ahmaud Arbery, you know, really all the way back um, to Rodney King and even further back in time. What do you believe are some of the deeper seated issues that still exist today? There are many, and I'm not going to be able to cover them all. And so mm-hmm. you know, my esteemed colleagues here, the one thing that I think many of us would have experienced is sort of the perception um, as a minority. Like I said, I'm from Nigeria, moved here to the South, South Carolina, Georgia from, from Nigeria, very difficult transition. So growing up, those formative years there, I became acutely aware of, of color. Nigeria wasn't something I was really aware of I was a majority, right? Different instances, my mom and a single mom would always hold her head up. I can tell you of instances in South Carolina where she would take us to church and uh, we would walk in. My mom would hold her head high, walk through and not sit in the back, but find a seat in the middle or close to the front. Mm -hmm. I found these extremely humiliating as a 10, 11 year old. Feeling that intense hatred in the place of worship. So there's there's so many hypocrisies in your daily existence here. One thing is said, love your neighbor. And as soon as that's done, you walk out in the street and you treat someone um, like they're subhuman. Mm. The perception of black skin is a threat. Or on the other side, when you are in a place where you clearly stand out as I did when I worked on the trading floor of the financial bank, everyone's assuming there's a special reason that you are here. And you're constantly trying to fight against that perception, right? There's a saying, the perception is a co-pilot to reality. What people see is what they believe. And if someone doesn't have a black friend, Mm -hmm. they only know what they're fed by the media or from Hollywood. You have to have personal experiences to be able to engage people. So the deep rooted aspect, which is really coming out nowadays with people saying they're allies and reaching out, how can I understand this more? Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are good. 
I'm, I'm glad that people are reaching out um, and saying, how can I understand this more? What can I do? Because that numbness, we all have it. If you're non-Black or non-person of color, it's easy for you to dilute that conversation, say it's not that big a deal. The police are great. Everyone's treated equally, such as mm -hmm. people in Trump's administration just said, we do not mm -hmm. think there's systematic racism in America. You've got to be joking, right? So from private to personal, the micro to the macro aggressions, it's a constant hustle. I've said to folks, it's like an obstacle course. And Jed mentioned anger, the perception of being an angry person. <laughs> if you're not smiling, if you don't make others comfortable, it's not even about them being comfortable, mm -hmm. it's about you making them comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so culturally and socially, I think that's one place where people have to question what their engagements and their preconceived notions are of people of color, because that bleeds into so many things. And it's easy to say, I am not racist or I believe in equality. I think many people would argue that the Central Park Karen would probably say that, you know, NBA from a top 10, donate to political campaigns. She would say, I'm not racist. But yet at a moment where she felt angry, she reached for that privilege by saying, I will call the cops and mm -hmm. tell them that a black man is whatever she was saying, harassing a white woman, just those trigger words. She knew that if she made that call, his chances of leaving that situation without harm are substantially reduced. That's privilege. Again, she might not say she's racist, but she knows how to pull the levers at the right time. People really have to question and look deep into themselves and say, Am I part of the problem either because I'm silent, because I'm ignorant, or because I just don't care? And so there's less of a reason for you to care if you're not personally affected by something. That's just human psychology, right? And so that's one place where I'll, I'll just stop there and say that beyond the institutions and the policies and the history, in today's age, if you're not speaking up, if you're not saying that looks wrong, or as one of my classmates said, if she sees a black person pulled over by a cop, she has a certain privilege as a white individual. She will pull up and tape it after asking if it's okay. And she's been in instances where cops left without even giving the person a ticket, probably because they had some nefarious intent. So being an advocate is so important. What that means for you personally and it's so easy to let everybody else control the narrative. You have a voice. And so if you're passive and you say, it's not, it's not my time to speak, it's not my issue, you are part of the problem. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I want to add in with the fact that people don't even notice, and that's how good the system is. And this isn't something that starts when we're adults, when we start to understand more. There have been so many tests done on implicit bias. I don't know if you all have probably seen the doll test with little kids where um, they're given white dolls and they're given black dolls. And every single child picks the white dolls as the ones who are pretty and the black dolls are the ones who are ugly and dumb and et cetera. And so when people think, well, I mean, you were taught this because of something that happened recently. And it's like, no, a five-year-old understands bias because that's how good it is. We're bombarded with it um, in entertainment, at school, when you're at the park, when you're shopping. It's, it's infiltrated into the way that we interact with one another in society. And so I think a huge thing that I keep telling folks is you have to do some critical self-reflection and a lot of unlearning that has to come together. The unlearning has to be actively anti-racist and anti-blackness, right? And so for me, when I think if someone says, well, niceness is not correlated with being not racist, right? People usually automatically think, well, well I'm a good person, just like Central Park Karen, uh, well, I do X, Y, Z, but at the end of the day, what are you actively doing to be anti-racist? And what, how are you fighting against anti-Blackness? One thing that I'll add is 
talking to your friends and family members about anti-Blackness and not having one of your Black friends having to be present. For me, I have a higher level of expectation. If you're not Black and you're my friend, I expect you to talk about anti-Blackness and actively be anti-racist whether or not I'm there. And here's the thing, that takes a lot of research, right? You can't enter a conversation or you can't have um, dialogue with folks who may not be on the same page or who are ignorant just because they don't know without understanding context for yourself. Um, a few ways that I keep telling people, okay, if you don't know, do research because I'm not going to teach you. <laughs> and I have a whole philosophy on that we can get into later because this is a different question. But things like food deserts. People don't even know food deserts exist. Um, people don't know about redlining when it comes to housing discrimination. People don't know that skin coloring cream is the biggest item uh, across markets in the globe, right? This isn't just a U.S. issue. So fighting anti-Blackness in any culture that you're from is so important. Um, and, and I'll end with just a piece of when you think about folks who share, because I've heard this a lot lately, well, there are other ways that different ethnicities interact with, with white people or with the police or with the system, and they have a history as well. It's a yes and, right? It's a yes and, but think about from a historical perspective, do research on your identity and your history and what that looks like from a power and privilege perspective. At Haas, we have a higher percentage of people who identify as Asian, um, Asian, Southeast Asian, Pacific Islander. But when you think about from a US context, let's, let's think about the history, right? There's been some major injustices that have happened to that identity group as well. But how are we here? How did we end up with the model minority myth? Like what, what are we doing to undo that? But when you think about how we got here, I recently learned, cause I'm starting to do my own research, how in 1965, there was a new immigration act that allowed Asians to come in, but only at high levels of education or with skill. And so it's this system that was predetermined for them to be successful, right? And then when you look at history, it's okay, well, what were Black people brought here for? And then you think about how Black people built this country without pay, by the way, you know what I mean? And so there are things in the historical context that we have to look at to also see how they play into the day-to-day -day stereotypes. And I'm not even going to get it in to the media. So I'll end right there because that's another issue that we could talk about for hours. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, I think that Nuhani made such a potent point in that we are consistently bombarded with it from youth. It's embedded in the air, in every experience that we have within and outside of our homes. So much so that you don't even notice it unless it's happening to you. And then you, you very much notice it. As far as the, the deeper city issues that underlie, I'd say it's really two things. First and foremost is the consequence. People do things based on their consequences. There are no consequences for me crossing a street in a green light in a crosswalk, totally fine. Doing so on a red light, there may be some consequences. I can't just walk into stores and pick out, you know, whatever laptop I want and walk out. There, there will be consequences. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a police officer and I kill someone in the line of duty, rightly or wrongly, there are far fewer consequences for me than if I, Jared Wright, regular black guy on the street, did the exact same thing. And because of those lack of consequences, those, those things create issues, you know. Olashini is in the, in the military. I don't, don't let me speak for you, but our military, they can't just go into a different region and act with impunity. There, there are consequences. There, there is a code of honor that our soldiers represent, represent us with while, while they're overseas. I feel like those that protect us at home 
it's only right that they have the the same level, the same standard that our our, our men and women that protect us across borders do. And people have to care because it's baked into society, because people experience it in the air that they breathe. You know, it's it's hard to care about what's normal. It's hard to care, especially when what's normal works really well for you. I understand that. I do. But it's just not right. Something that's in vogue right now that um, I fundamentally disagree with is someone says something racist, someone says something that you don't like, they're immediately deleted from Facebook. Are you voted for Trump? I can't talk to you anymore. We can't be friends. What you're doing is you're burying that person further in the silo that they shouldn't be in in the first place. I think, my own personal opinion, that it's our duty to reach out even further to those people with opposing viewpoints because, being blunt, they're part of the problem. But their eyes won't be opened without some experiences with black people. Their eyes won't be open unless they figure it out. You know, I understand how exhausting it is, you know, dealing with people. Oh, what what school did you go to? Oh, where'd you learn to speak that way? Oh, how did you do this? It's, I mean, even, oh, do you wear sunscreen? It's, you know, I I understand It's, it's exhausting. But, you know, when normal works for them really well, it might be a heavy lift for them. And me, I need people to care because it's not going to be until we reach that critical mass of people caring that things in this country are going to change at all. Mm -hmm. I'm reflecting back in the day when we used to have class in person. And probably virtually too. I am one of two Black people in our cohort. And I'm not even talking about the whole class of 2022, right? Mm -hmm. But whenever the professor brings up something that has to do with slavery or Blackness and the way that interacts with the economy, I am expected to say something. And whether or not that's an expectation that I'm putting on myself or that's the anxiety that's coming out, I remember I had this moment of relief when I had certain classmates to speak up, raise their hand first and say what they needed to say, which I aligned with. And that provided the sense of relief. And that's what I want to continue seeing. I shouldn't have to be the person to speak for an entire experience because it's an individual experience. You can't stereotype for a whole group and how they might perceive something. But that's the kind of future that I hope to see in the classroom at Haas. And that's only one person. Imagine if there were 10 or 15 people raising their hand. Mm -hmm. Right. So that sparked um, a memory. But another thing that I neglected to share as a part of the education that people can start to learn more about because it's relevant in terms of how we've as black people have been systematically dehumanized. One fact that I like to share with folks is how um, there's a school to prison pipeline in this country. And so the folks who are future planning for prisons, it's literally correlated to the number of black boys who are wrongly sent to detention and reading scores from the third grade. Wow. The third grade. And so when you learn things like that, you start to realize how early the planning is. Well, I mean, point is is, is definitely resonates. There are a couple of things First, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen 13th, you should definitely see that. I um, was going to say, I watched that last night, actually. Yeah, like that yeah. that's like three, four podcasts by itself. But mm-hmm. one of the points that was made about, you know, the classroom, I recall being in law school and, um, you know, there weren't that many of us in the classroom. But whenever we 
touching on topic that dealt with equality, that dealt with civil rights, you know, movement, especially in constitutional law. I remember having this exact same complaint to my other um, black friends, like, why do I have to be the spokesperson? Because my professor would look at me and go, Olashemi, he would mispronounce my name. What do you think about, boom, every time without fail? And my perspective is I'm living it, right? And so I, I understand in, in classrooms that diversity of discourse helps enlighten other people. But it's hard for me to capture the full history because I'm going to be looking through my perspective. But it's added pressure. You, as the person who experiences this daily and day out, Outside of this classroom, this isn't just a topic for conversation. This is your life, right? You constantly have to be, well, this is what I think. And it's welcome, but you would want other people to speak up. And one of the things that Jared said, look, I, I, I think the reaction of removing people from social media, I actually went through this personally. Trayvon Martin died when I was in Afghanistan. And I was just disgusted and hurt, but also this concept of fighting for freedom, right? That's something we're willing to die for, the concept of freedom. And to feel this disconnect that back home, a 17-year-old was killed because he looked like me. There were some comments that were made on social media by people that I perceived as being brothers in arms. And I felt like I didn't have to look at that. Over time, as this continued to happen, yeah. I, I, there were, you know, there were connections, but after a while, I was like, I don't need to look at these comments. Every time a black person is killed, we change the narrative. Oh, blue lives matter. Okay, cool. All lives matter. We keep changing the narrative to dilute the conversation, and black lives are under attack constantly from different angles, right? And part of the mental health perspective was I didn't want to see these comments. I want to be affiliated with these folks. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, obviously, that falls under the umbrella of freedom. I respect that. But I've said this many times, I do not want to be the most diverse person in the state, in the city. I want to be, I, I'm tired of carrying that banner because I can't change my skin color. You know, I'm uber chocolate dark. And as people will tell you that there is, even within the spectrum of colors, there's even more intensity when you're like really, really black people being like, okay, like you're a threat, you're angry. This perception, like I don't always want to be the person that's going to enlighten you and educate you. I can do so by my actions, by the life I live, by perhaps career trajectory. People say, oh, you're the exception or blah, blah, blah. And you may be the only black person, a person of color that someone knows. I get, I get those circles where you can move the needle as an ambassador, right? But it's a burden as well, right? It, it's, it's, it's difficult. And you know, second point that Jared made, which was, you know, the rules of engagement. I do think police need to be trained. Too often, especially in small towns in the South, it's, it's power. It's unbridled power. You can stop anyone. You can, because of how you feel, not because of the law, because there's so much interpretation there, right? If I'm going three miles over the speed limit, well, technically, like, you could stop me, right? So I'm going to try to comply beyond compliant. Like I need to over comply. My mom told me every time in the South, she said, dead men have no rights. Whenever you're stopped, just put your hands on the steering wheel, turn on the lights. Like she instilled that level of concern and awareness. I tried mm -hmm. to be uber polite whenever I was stopped. When I was at university, I put my university sticker on the back of my car. And when I did do that, I will stop less, but still stopped. You're constantly doing this dance. And I submit to you that you know, I'm 39. Like To be 39, after living in the South and a lot of the other experiences I've had, and to manage manage these experiences with police, it's, it's, it's challenging. Even as a licensed attorney, cops still made me nervous. Even though I know my rights, they still make me nervous. Because if they pull the trigger, who controls the narrative? The impunity with which they behave, it gives, it reinforces that behavior. In Afghanistan, before we go, we're trained to know that nothing takes away our inherent right to self-defense, right? However, 
the rules of engagement and proportionality apply. It's even harder in Afghanistan because everyone's dressed the same. You don't know who is the enemy. You just don't know. Everyone's just dressed in their cultural garb, right? And so if someone throws a rock, you can't shoot them. That's not proportionality. You'll be court-martialed. The cops here can say, I was scared. He was reaching for his phone. This inherent fear that you have makes everyone seem a threat. You should question, is there proper training? Is there beyond the bias training? Is every black person to you a threat? Because you think they're going to reach for something. There is another video, Final Castile. There's so many videos that hurt beyond, like I, they all hurt. But even when the girlfriend was saying, hey, like he has a gun, he has a license to carry the gun. And you could just say she's taping the whole thing and the cop still shoots. Hmm. I, I mean, what does that tell you? My words don't matter to you. If I say I can't breathe, if I say hey, I have a license for this, if I say, hey, I'm reaching slowly into my glove compartment, like I'm showing you my hands, like you have to announce every action because if you're shot, the perception will be, well, you must have done something. And that cop is justified. Mm -hmm. We have to change that burden. We have to switch that around and ensure that why did you shoot? And what other mechanisms could we take to de-escalate? I know we now have body cams, but tasers. And I'm not saying cops' jobs aren't inherently dangerous. Soldiers' jobs are inherently dangerous too. But again, unless we've been fired upon, we cannot engage in a, we can't just start shooting into the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I just don't understand how our military can be trained but our domestic force can just, it's like the wild, wild west. And I know all cops are not bad. That's not what I'm saying. Just like all black people are not bad. Just like all white people are not bad. The narrative is the numbers, look at the data. And thankfully, we have devices that are recording. What about all the ones that weren't recorded? All the stories that were not told? This is a small, small percentage. And people still want to change the narrative. Like even with the video cameras, people still want to question and change the narrative. Imagine how much difficult it was in the 60s, mm -hmm. 70s, 80s, right? It's, it's, it's frustrating. So for me, this has been such a long journey carried by African-Americans, by people of color. At what point do you say, we, we've been marching, MLK? Like there have been laws. What else can we do? The justice system will incarcerate black men at a higher rate. The federal sentencing guidelines would show that higher prosecution and longer rates for possession of um, crack versus possession of cocaine, that disparity in the laws already shows planning. The new Hamid was mentioning that, oh, cocaine is a wealthier drug. Wealthier people have access to this and the wealthier people are white. So they should have lesser prison sense. Think about how that makes you lose faith in the criminal justice system. I mean, I'll stop there, but I just, the burden is so hard to carry and people should educate themselves now. Just like you'd want to know your alphabets. You want to know your mathematics as a kid. People <laughs> should know the history. Like this is essential. Yeah, that. I mean, you are preaching because <laughs> there are so many things that we can continue learning. Um, someone brought up in a conversation that I was reading how, well, a lot of the work is black on black crime and black people are dying. That was triggering for me. And the first thing I thought was, wow, you're so uneducated. You didn't even take the time to do your research. Had you done research, and I'll speak for my city, in Chicago, there are cops who have dropped off crates of guns in black neighborhoods in order to entice gang wars and then arrest everybody the, the following weekend or for months to come. And so the fact that people aren't even educated with what's actually happening and make these large scheme assumptions of, well, these are the results, it saddens me, but it also allows me to see how much um, education there is, how much space people um, need to take the time to actually learn before they make generalizations. I also wanted to comment around Jared's perspective. It's, it's something that someone challenged me recently and I had an aha moment where um, this person I was speaking with, they have friends with 
different political um, perspectives. And I always encourage folks, well, you need to have a diverse group of friends, whether it's religion, race, um, ability, uh, career, whatever that looks like, get to know other people. But when I when I looked around, I was like, oh, I think everyone in my immediate circle and perhaps even larger circle potentially has the same political viewpoints. And I, I started to realize, okay, that's interesting. That's something that I can work on so that I can understand people's perspectives. Um, not to argue, but just to understand, right? We can have this conversation um, that's constructive. But when it comes to taking the burden of educating others, I am choosing to no longer do that. And even when it comes to protesting or whatever, in these past few weeks, I've noticed, wow, we have a lot of allies out here with us in these streets, white allies, Asian allies, Latina, Latino ally, like the list goes on and on. And it's been so beautiful. The fact that it's also global, like you have people in Tokyo marching for Black Lives Matter, you have people in Paris, you have people in Sydney, it's beautiful to see. And so the aha moment I had was how this is an opportunity for us as Black people to sit back and start healing. We need to start healing because the trauma is so real. All of us talked about how numb we feel whenever we see a video like that. The amount of healing that needs to take place inwardly is so important. And another fact that I'll throw out there, there's been studies done on why there's a higher rate of black women who die during childbirth. And people didn't understand why. And it's because of the trauma that's carried internally from generation to generation to generation from when we entered this country. And so these are little areas of education that people can start gaining, but I do encourage us to start leaning more on our allies to have these conversations amongst each other so that we can do the healing that we need. I, I wanna just drop one thing in here, the health aspect, you know, I, 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 I'm a health startup and um, <laughs> the, the stress of living, <laughs> the stress of being black in America, high blood pressure, like I, I could go on for days on that. Um, and the adverse, the grossly adverse impact that, that COVID has had versus other uh, other races. So W.E.B. Du Bois um, coined a phrase called um, double consciousness, right? And double consciousness is the concept of seeing yourself through the lens of the oppressor. And what that means, how does that manifest itself is, for example, you know, whenever I go into a store right, with a bag from another store, I am conscious. Like, I don't want to go into the dressing room because I don't want even the accusation would be just as damaging to me at this juncture in my life. Just the thought that you would accuse me of stealing something. Just know how much that like just roils and goes to my core. So I try to do everything to avoid putting myself in a situation where someone may say, oh, can I check that bag? Or God forbid, I'm walking out the door and the Beep, 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 goes off. I'm like, yeah, come check my bag, please. Because you're always carrying that burden because it's not just how I see myself. It's how other people see me. Can I run after 8 p.m. at night you know, in, 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 in athletic clothing? Ah, I could, but someone's going to be threatened by that. This burden of always trying to dance politely, again, to manage everybody else's comfort, it's hard whether you're in a corporate environment or you're in a private setting or the way you're treated when you go to restaurants. Like, and, and I, I mean, there's so many micro microaggressions and you're aware of these and these build up. And this concept of being angry, it's like death by a thousand little cuts, but it goes on for so long. And finally there's one event and maybe you lose it. And, but you can't, you can't, you have to hold it all in. And that will manifest itself in your health. It is challenging. And so that's one thing that everyone carries. And I just want to highlight there are health impacts to that. There really are. Constantly being afraid when a cop gets drives behind me that they're going to turn their lights on. So I make sure that I stop at the stop sign. I don't know how long I should stop, but I'm going to really stop. Five seconds. I'm going to overdo it, right? My mom told me she's been pulled over for driving too slow. <laughs> 
because a cop was behind her. I mean, that's real, right? You're just trying to balance. You're trying to walk this tightrope your whole life. So, of course, that's going to manifest itself psychologically, emotionally, physically. And so I, I just want to highlight the health component of that as yeah. well. Yep. And it's not just in the streets. I'll be vulnerable and share every Saturday when I drove to Haas, I have anxiety. I would drive up, and, and this is the cycle. I get off the highway. I have this anxiety of, okay, I hope I don't run into five or six different interactions that make me be the only Black person in the circle where I have to speak for this. And I didn't even notice why, where the anxiety was coming from, and I finally realized it eventually when you're the only one in the room. Um, but what helps me, and this is because of my immigrant background, is I've been taught that education is so important, right? Uh, I'm so grateful for where I am. So these are the words that I have to tell myself. When I get off of the highway, I see a group of homeless people who are struggling and trying to get by. And I think, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful. And yet at the end of the day, I'm still walking in with this anxiety. So there's just a lot of additional pressure that our friends don't know about. I've never said this to any of them, but that's because they're great people, right? It doesn't mean anything in terms of the kind of interactions that should be changed or whatever. It's just the fact that this internal anxiety takes place. Jared and I fight all the time, <laughs> but when he walks up, there's a sense of relief. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I'm not the only one, but I, at least I could joke around with him. You know what I mean? And so I, I think I share this just to raise the level of awareness of what goes on internally, one, and two, the importance of allyship and other friends in our circles to be able to speak so that we don't have to. Yeah, I, I agree so much. It, it, you know, my friends here have been sharing, you know, speaks to that level of exhaustion that we all feel from constantly having to be the one, from constantly being looked at, from constantly um, being paraded around as the example. You know, I think that I think that we've got to, you know, lean into our strengths. I just kind of know that I'm the representative. That's one of those things that, you know, my parents, my family, my cousins, my uncles, everything, you know, they, they drill into you. They drill into me. When you walk into a space, you're bringing all of us with you. Don't embarrass us, you know, and it's. It's crushing when, when there's a failure. It's actually the, the one thing that I do fear is failure. And, you know, maybe it's something that, that drives me to, to, to push as hard as I do, to sleep as little as I do, to be as active a, as I am. It's just that constant fear of failing myself, of failing my people. You know, Hamdi's right. I, we do fight all the time, but I'm constantly afraid that I'm going to embarrass her <laughs> because she's like the only other one, you know? And I'm like... And Chuck. Let's add in our brother, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chuck, Chuck's my... Yeah, he's good people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then am I, am I perpetuating it, you know? Am I holding up new Hamni as the example that I need to check with her to make sure that my that I'm properly representing, you know, the quintessence of blackness. I think that I, I want people to have a different experience of black people. I especially hate it when people look at my my accomplishments, my successes, my journey, my story, and they think, oh Jared, or they say You've come from the hood, you've come from this place, you've come from all these struggles and strifes and look at you now, you know, this is proof that, you know, anyone can do this. Um, I don't know, it just, it really ignites me because I'm not, I'm not Superman, you know, I've, I've done a, a lot of, you know, really interesting things and you know, on, on that basis, yeah, I, I view myself as exceptional. However, I, I am not special at all. I'm 
no better than anybody else that comes up around me from where I come from. I am not the product of, you know, what's, what's possible from coming from the hood. I, I am evidence of what could be if given the proper amount of support and attention and support and support because none of us can do it by ourselves. I think Jared, you bring up a good point because just because it's possible doesn't mean it's likely, right? Like the system could still be rigged against you. You could win the lottery, right? Like the, the odds are there, but the system, and I think a lot of you guys have talked about kind of just is kind of stacked, right? And I think Nuhami, what you brought up, the question of how did we get here is very legitimate in the sense that really the definition of normal was defined by, you know, the founders of this country, like people that are in, you know, prior generations, right, where there was even more racism, more anti-blackness. And a lot of these effects are unconscious. I think Marco Rivera, who's in associate director of DEI uh, at Haas, mentioned a lot of terms that we use in everyday life, right, to refer to negative things like black sheep, dark humor, or, you know, just a lot of these unconscious things that they don't even think about are associated with dark, with black, with dark colors. So I guess this issue is definitely like you guys have all um, illustrated with some of your wonderful stories is, is very deep rooted. That kind of goes towards what I want to ask next is what can we do to help? How can we help you guys and the black community in general lift this gigantic burden that y'all have been carrying for so long? I think Nohamni said it perfectly earlier. Educate yourself. Now, I just as an unfortunate natural state of my Jared Wright, my own personal being, I do my best to represent my people well and give people a different example of, of what's there. But educate yourself and don't necessarily lean on us for everything because you know, we, we're all anecdotal information. You need to go figure it out. You need to go be educated. I have a whole list ready for y'all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for me, um, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to think about where we spend our money and to fight anti-Blackness. One thing that I would love people to start focusing on is supporting small and large Black-owned businesses. And we can't use the excuse of, I don't know anymore. The internet is there, Instagram is there, Facebook is there. However, I pulled up a few options for folks because I know you're going to do this anyway, so why not support the Black-owned businesses as well? So if you go on Instagram, um, there's a page called McBride Sisters. They've listed 67 Black-owned wineries. I know we love to drink wine. <laughs> Hassies are always planning trips to Napa. So just take a look at that. Even if you're not going there, you can order the wine, right? Look up, look up what Black-owned wineries there are in your local store. Look up on Instagram. There's an account called Black Bay Area, the Black Bay Area. And they've also listed Black-owned restaurants in the Bay Area. And that includes... SF, Oakland, South Bay, there's an entire list of places that you can support. Another place is Glow Graphics, G-L-O Graphics. It's this um, dope artist who is a black woman who creates answers through graphics. And one of the ones that I thought was really helpful during this time asked the question, what do I text my black friends? Because how are you doing? is a question that is difficult to answer. Perhaps 
if someone has gotten it a lot, they may not want to answer that question. So she does this beautiful job of saying, avoid how are you doing? And here are three whole options. And so taking it upon yourself to do that research helps a lot in terms of building closer relationships with those around you. It could also help in other relationships too, right? Um, how are you doing is perhaps maybe just so standard and, and there are other ways to ask. As uh, my brothers over here mentioned, 13th, the documentary, if you haven't seen it, please watch it. If you are going to engage in a conversation, perhaps watch that first so that you can have some context before talking, <laughs> opening your mouth. My favorite podcast is 1619, but I want to direct folks specifically to episode two. And the title of it is The Economy That Slavery Built. A lot of times when we talk about slavery, people think that, well, that happened a long time ago, or, well, yes, that is so unfortunate and it makes me sad. And yes, I, the society that I identify with or the race I identify with has benefited and I acknowledge it. However, that episode did a lot for me. It allowed me to see the financial context of slavery. So the economy of the U.S. was built based on slavery. And I'm talking billions of dollars of free labor mm -hmm. for years. And so understanding that context. And I'll, and I'll leave you all with just one more thing. There's this, this uh, notion of, well, it was really bad before and things are better. And they're not. It's just overt now. And so what's helped with for me to, in my learning, um, there's this pyramid image that I found and I'm happy to send it out. And it may seem a little extreme, but we're talking real here, right? So, and we're talking about systemic oppression. It's called the pyramid of white supremacy. And it's really interesting because we all fall into that trap and it climbs up into um, what that looks like from indifference all the way up to genocide at the tip. And so I just want to give a quick example, a few examples to give context to what that looks like. So when you're thinking about indifference, one of the examples it gives is when people say, well, there's two sides to every story. That's one. Well, politics don't affect me. And then you go up to minimization. So when you think about minimization, it's, well, get over slavery. Or it's just a joke. I didn't mean it like that. Or... Um, we all belong to the human race. You're minimizing the experience and the reality. And then it goes up to veiled racism when you talk about tokenism. If there's only one Black person on your team at work and they're always the one called on for diversity-related projects or conversation in the classroom, if the one person who identifies um, with that identity is the one who's always used, and, and this can go beyond blackness this can also be if you're looking at the only person who's gay for any lgbtq related response that's a problem that's tokenism right and so it continues to go up to discrimination what does it look like um, fearing people of color racial profiling um, the school to prison pipeline that i mentioned earlier then it goes up to calls of violence then violence and then genocide and so when we think about history in terms of well, no one is going to walk up to you and say the N-word anymore. Like, that's just absurd. Okay, that's fine. But we're living in this new world of what that could look like. And so I just want people to start doing the research and not just based off of assumptions or what they read or see on the media. Thank you for sharing, uh, Nuhami. We'll provide links to those resources in our show notes. What I want to end on, with our conversation today is are there any like lasting messages that you want to deliver or send to your Haas classmates and prospective students? For me, I would say that I'm very grateful for all of the classmates who have reached out, the classmates who have made the dedication to educate their friends or their family Classmates have protested with me if they felt comfortable or if they were allowed to. There are different ways that you can support, and I'm honestly grateful. What I would love to see is 
for it not to just be us to be pushing admissions to have more black students in our program. I think this should be a collective effort. This shouldn't just be on our shoulders to demand more diversity at Haas. Lasting message. Well, first, you know, some of my colleagues here, Haas is a unique ecosystem and to a large extent, a good number of people are aware. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a perfect ecosystem, but I'm saying that you find yourself talking to people who actually want to have a conversation, right? Which is also a start. I've marched with classmates, veterans. I'm grateful for the activism I'm seeing, for the stepping out of the comfort zone. And I want to emphasize this shouldn't be a trend or just a social media hashtag, right? That this should be a lifelong journey of being woke and being an advocate. I think that's really the message for me. I'm really encouraged by many of my classmates. Yes, the outreach has been great, um, even beyond the classroom. Veterans, active duty soldiers I served with have checked in on me because that mental aspect is key. But the prolonged journey, knowing that this is the beginning, it's not an overnight movement. It's because <laughs> if it was overnight, you know, we wouldn't be here. Like this is this is a prolonged journey and it's ingrained. And so as we are in our internships, as we advance in our careers, let's not forget this moment. Let's not become complacent. Let's not be Central Park Karens who donate but don't live the experience. That's really the message is make, make sure this is enduring. Make sure you teach your kids. You know, I have a 14 week old daughter. I do not want her marching for these same issues. Mm-hmm. You know, that sounds counterintuitive because I just said it's a prolonged fight, but we have the ability to move the needle. Teach your kids about bias. Have friends who are outside of your socioeconomic status say hello to your neighbors. Don't let the media inform your decisions. Challenge the status quo, which is one of our tenants here at Haas. But what does that mean? Don't be fed the news. Experience it. Ask. Engage. But five years from now, 10 years from now, be aware that it can take a different form. It continues to evolve and manifest itself in different ways. So we have to be vigilant, right? It's like when we say we want to fight terrorism. Terrorism isn't a physical thing we can just stifle out. It's a prolonged journey. So is racism, right? We can have little battles that we win but we still have this war to fight. And so each of us is literally a citizen soldier, if you want to be, for equality, be an advocate for your actions, your dollars, as Nohamin has guided us about. But the prolonged engagement is really where it is. If and when the protests seem to die down, which you can protest in a different way if you don't physically go out there, if you become concerned about COVID or something, you can be engaged. And I I think donations are great, but again, we have a history of throwing money at problems and not throwing up our sleeves and saying, how do I actually make this better? And so messages keep on keeping on. At Haas, I often find myself to be the only, only Black person in the room, only Cocoa Puff in the milk, my mom likes to say. And Although I'm the only one, I'm not, I'm not alone. I, because there are so many allies that are there with us that will stand with us, that will, that will speak up with, within for us. So there, there, there's a comfort in that. And what I would ask incoming students, my current classmates, is to be that everywhere. Um, you know, because I know that there is more likely in their circles that they encounter people, you know, that that raise auntie, you know, that are just outside of where they need to be. I like to rely on them to, to, to bring them in because, like I said earlier, you know, until enough people care 
I'd like to put it out there for, for, for those of us that are that are on my side, that are on our side, be on our side everywhere and all the time. I want to thank you guys for coming on the podcast today, for sharing your stories, for sharing your messages, and just being real with us. I certainly learned a few things on this podcast, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Go check out some of the resources we mentioned. Those are in the show notes on Apple Podcasts and on our website. Jarrett, Nuami, Olasheni, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Ray, for you know giving us a forum to 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 uh, speak to share our thoughts and insights. And so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you pushing the ball forward. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Here at Haas. If you enjoyed the show, please share with a friend or fellow Hossie. If you have feedback for us, please email us at haaspodcasts at berkeley.edu. That's H-A-A-S, podcasts, plural, at berkeley.edu. I'm Ray Guan, and I encourage you to educate, to donate, to fight racism and anti-blackness in your own way. And we'll see you next time here at Haas.